Hi, I'm Katrina Daniel, and welcome to Primetime Crime, a podcast for people who want to know what goes on behind the scenes of the most notorious trending crime stories and what's going on in the minds of those involved in those stories. What are the detectives, the judges, the defense attorneys, and the prosecutors thinking? You'll hear it all on Primetime Crime, the podcast. Hello, I'm Katrina Daniel, and as most of you know, two FBI agents were shot to death as they tried to serve a warrant on a child porn suspect in Sunrise, Florida. That suspect saw the agents coming to his apartment door on his video doorbell, and he pulled out his rifle, shot through the door, and killed the two agents, Laura Schwarzenberger and Daniel Alfin. He also wounded three others who are recovering. The coward then killed himself. Agent Laura Schwarzenberger leaves behind two children and her husband. Daniel Alfin leaves his wife and a young son. Alfin was the lead agent in this case, and both agents were known and lauded for their diligence and devotion in pursuing those who commit crimes against children. Now, before we start analyzing what happened here, let me read you the official FBI statement made by special agent in charge Miami, George Pirro, who said in part, quote, it was a court-ordered violent crimes against children investigation. FBI Miami conducts search warrants almost daily. They are an essential and important part of what we do and are thoroughly researched and meticulously planned, unquote. Really? How much research would it have taken to see that the guy had a video doorbell? My guest today, veteran Miami-Dade homicide detective Jeff Lewis, who has served hundreds of warrants and tells exactly what should have been done. And attorney Andy Yaffa, who very successfully represented the family of a Broward County Florida Sheriff's deputy, Todd Fata, who was also shot and killed while serving a warrant, also on a child sex offender. This FBI fiasco deserves a real hard look, and I'm really happy today to have two people who can help me do that. Veteran homicide detective Jeff Lewis, who has served countless warrants, and Uber personal injury attorney Andy Yaffa. Um, Not for Uber, but just top of the top of PI attorneys. Gentlemen, thanks a lot for joining us. So, Jeff, let's talk um, in your career as a homicide detective for Miami-Dade for more than 30 years. How many warrants do you think you served? Oh, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds. And it started it started before my homicide tenure. Uh, it started when I was a crime uh, suppression team detective, and then when I was a robber detective, and then on through my homicide days as well. So basically over my 30-year career, hundreds and hundreds of warrants, arrest warrants, search warrants, those type of things. Can you generalize about who are the toughest, who are the worst, who are the scariest? Um, Our attitude was everybody was the scariest. You never assumed that anybody was going to go easy. You always assumed that you were going to meet force. You always assumed that these are criminals that did not want to go to jail or prison and that they would do whatever it took to keep from going. You always assumed they were going to be armed with some type of weapons, firearms, rifles. Um, so you never went in soft. What do you mean you never went in soft? Expand on that. We always went in with a show of force. 
Um, you always wanted to be able to uh, give the appearance to the individual you were going after that you, that you had him outnumbered, outflanked, and you didn't want him to think about the possibility of trying to shoot or harm or fight. So we would call that going in hard. Describe the procedure for us. I'll, I'll touch on the highlights. There's, there's quite a few procedures that uh, not only our police department, but I'm sure nationwide, uh, there's a protocol that you follow, particularly if you're serving a, uh, a search warrant as opposed to maybe an arrest warrant. If it's an arrest warrant, number one, you want to identify the location where the individual lives, obviously. And if you're going to serve a warrant at that residence, there's a few things that the department requires. Number one is you establish the, a physical identity of the residence. And that means providing a physical description, including the address, um, if there are surveillance cameras mounted on the residence, uh, anything at all to describe that particular residence, that all goes into the search warrant. Um, <clears throat> once you've established that, then you want to establish who actually lives inside of the residence. Is it just the individual you're looking to arrest or serve the search warrant on? Is it family? Is it friends? So you try to do that. Um, you can utilize uh, uh, water bills, electric bills, maybe phone bills, anything at all that may have a, a name attached to who's paying the bills. Um, you check for the vehicles at the residence. You run the tag numbers. Do they come back to the person you're serving the warrant on? Are there other people? So you do those things. That requires surveilling the, uh, the residents prior to serving the search warrant as well, because again, you have to obtain all that information. And usually that's the lead detective that will do that because the lead detective is the one that prepares the search warrant and or the arrest warrant. So once you've got all those bases covered and you're pretty sure that this is exactly the place you want to uh, uh, send your team to, you obtain the warrant. You get the warrant signed by the judge, and then now you serve it. There's a couple ways you can do that. You can do it with your teammates or your squad mates from the robbery section, the crime suppression, whatever unit you're in. If you do that, and when we did that um, in robbery in particular, we would never send less than eight to ten detectives because, again, you want that show of force. If you decide that you want to utilize the SWAT team, then what you'll do is you'll confer with the SWAT team commander, give him the information. They will do their own surveillance um, of a residence protocol. They'll make sure that everything matches up with the search warrant. And then prior to you actually serving the warrant, uh, normally you will do a drive-by with the SWAT team yourself. You'll be in that SWAT vehicle. It's an undercover vehicle or whatever they may utilize. You will go by the residence again, and you will both verify that is the residence that you're serving the warrant on. Um, the last thing you want to do is hit the wrong house. Now, the other thing you want to do is uh, a, a normal procedure, the complete background of the individual you're looking at, the background of anybody in the residence, any past arrests, any problems with the neighbors, any problems with the police, calls for uh, that were received by the officers that were there, any, any calls that they responded to, try to get those police reports, read into them, um, try to ascertain if you can if he does have any weapons. If this is somebody that's never been arrested before or convicted of a felony, then you assume he's got a weapon. He's a criminal. He's probably going to have a gun. Um, and then once you've done everything that I have just described, then you decide when you're going to actually serve your warrant. Usually you like to serve them early in the morning. Why? Because most people don't get up before five o'clock. Now, when you serve the warrant, 
again, protocol, I'm sure probably nationwide for every police department is you, there's things you want to consider. Um, first of all, is anybody outside the house? Uh, are there neighbors in the area? Is somebody walking a dog? Are there kids around? Is it school? Those things you want to consider. You want to surround the residents if possible. It's tough if it's an apartment. Now, when you serve the warrant, and today, probably based on the uh, incident in Louisville with Breonna Taylor, most departments are probably going to the knock first before you actually bang the door down. There, there's a no-knock warrant, there's a knock warrant. So with the knock warrant, you are literally knocking on the door, announcing that you're there, so they know. To me, that's the worst thing in the world, because now you have let the individual know you're there. You haven't breached the door yet. Now you've given him an opportunity to arm himself. I do not like that, but that's part of the deal nowadays. Either way, even as you're uh, announcing yourself, you can start breaching the door. I mean, you don't have to wait five minutes after you knock, but usually at the time you're announcing that you're the police, you're breaching the door. Hopefully you have a SWAT team and it's, let the SWAT team go before you. They have the tools. They have the manpower, they're armed, they, they have the, uh, the helmets on, the, the safety gear, they're good to go. Let them breach the door, make entry, secure the residence. Anybody in the residence gets handcuffed, gets secured, gets searched. Once that's done, you as a detective now will enter the residence and start with your investigation, whatever that may be. Um, if you don't have a SWAT team, you still want to have uniformed police officers present and at the door with you. And you will be wearing clothing that identifies yourself as a police officer as well, because you don't want anybody mistakenly saying that they didn't know you were the police. This is also good if you have neighbors in the area, because sometimes these individuals will claim that, that you didn't announce you were the police. Those type of situations come up all the time. That's so why you record it. You are absolutely, you, nowadays, uh, with the cameras and everything, you record all that. See, back when I did this, we didn't have the body cams, but that is an excellent point that everything is recorded. Nowadays, with this ring that people have on their doors, and that was an issue in this particular case with the agents, I would have somebody assigned to have a piece of tape to walk up when they're going up to that door, put that tape right over that, that ring. That thing alerts people, you know, if you have one, I do. I mean, no matter yeah, where you are. Too. Well, it's going to go off, but at least if you can cover it, that'll disable him from being able to see what's going on. And again, a lot of times when you serve search warrants, they would have security cameras anyway on their property. And usually those would be mounted on the roofs or on the, on the side of the house or whatever. You couldn't really do anything about those, but you're aware of it because when you did your physical description check of the residence, you noted that there's surveillance cameras. So those are some of the things that I would do that I went through when I served uh, arrest warrants and search warrants. Jeff, thanks a lot. So let's bring Andy here and, and say, Andy, tell us about the Todd Fatta case. What happened to Deputy Todd Fatta? So um, I represented, I had the honor of representing the estate of Todd Fatta, who was killed in the line of duty when he, in a joint task force with the uh, feds, were serving a search warrant on a kitty porn suspect. Uh, they had his lover in jail tape uh, recorded interviews where they were discussing the fact that contraband and photographs were still on scene and hadn't been found yet. And uh, the lover who was there in the house specifically said, um, I'm here, I'm ready, I'm waiting for them, my guns are out. If they come, they are going to, to encounter a gunfight. 
And unfortunately, this information was not shared with the first two BSO officers that were going through the front door. That would be Todd Fada and Angie Cedeno. And these guys went into a gun battle that they did not know, they weren't prepared for, and they did not have an opportunity to make an informed choice. And even though they were wearing bulletproof vests, the assailant was armed with uh, high caliber weapons that uh, pierced Todd's vest and killed him. And Angie lost several fingers in the incident as well. And so we ended up suing the Broward Sheriff's Office on a theory that they failed to appropriately protect and inform and advise um, their officers that were going in to serve these warrants. And when you're doing a forced entry, it is the most dangerous thing that an officer, uh, Jeff just laid it out for you. You don't go in without expecting the worst. We thought and we hoped that in addition to the monetary result that we got for the family, that we had made it safer for every other police officer out there because they passed a new rule that all forced entries would be done by SWAT so that nobody else had to lose their lives. And that's why this case involving um, the federal agents, Detective Alfin and Schwarzenberger, is so shocking to the conscious. They knew, they learned their lesson beforehand. Todd lost his life, they changed the policy and procedure, and they disregarded it. And here it is, you've got two other folks dying for no good reason. It's just, it's horrible. Andy, if you were going to sue the FBI, what could you do to get some justice for these two dead FBI agents? Well, let me preface uh, these answers with the fact that we don't know what the feds really knew because they haven't shared that information. You know, just doing our own basic investigation, we know they had cameras outside the house. We know that they had the ring system uh, there at the doorbell. We know had they done appropriate due diligence and they were going to follow policy and procedure, you have to expect and anticipate that there are guns lying in wait for them and he's going to see you coming. So again, without knowing the actual background and work that the feds did in this case, I would say to you that you need to know those facts to answer, is there a cause of action? But if there is, yes, you could sue them. It would be under the Federal Torts Claims Act. And that would fall in the federal jurisdiction in front of a federal judge, and you would not be entitled to a jury trial. But yes, it could be It could be done. How would you present it to a judge? I guess the reason for not presenting it to a jury, since you say that that's a law, um, it could could have been done very, very emotionally. Boy, I, as, a, as a PI attorney, if I were, that would be just a gem of a case. Well, it's an emotional case. It, it tugs at your heartstrings. Um, but e even so, um, when you're suing the federal government, um, you have the ability to sue them and there are no limits, monetary caps in place like there are when you sue the state, a state municipality, a city, an ordinance. When I sued BSO, there was a cap of $200,000 and to get in excess of that, you needed to get a claims bill, a special law passed. We had to do that with Todd Fada's case. That doesn't exist in the federal system. And as a partial waiver of this sovereign immunity, you, you don't get the benefit of a jury. But with a judge, what you get to do is you get to plead to the, the judge's conscience and his sense of, of fairness. Judge, here it is, they had a rule in place. They lost two officers in 2004 and they changed the policy and procedure to prevent losses and deaths just like this. But for whatever reason, in this case, they either didn't do their due diligence or they did and they disregarded it. They failed to follow policy and procedure and as a direct result, here it is, you've got agents Alfin and Schwarzenberger that paid the, the ultimate price with their lives. Even a judge will see through that. So Jeff, 
I know that you served a lot of these and the due diligence that you described, all the so-called George Pirro's meticulous planning and thorough research. Did this shock you? I was very shocked and, and um, very upset to see this happen. And again, I'm only going by what I saw in the news. And I, of course, don't know the background and what they did or didn't do and how, they, you know, and of course, I would never uh, criticize any other agency or law enforcement person that was involved in this situation because I've been on the scene when our SWAT team, the Miami-Dade SWAT team, was serving a warrant, a search warrant in Carroll City, and our SWAT team is probably one of the best in the country. And during the service of the warrant, one of the guys got shot and almost blew his hand off because the bad guy shot him as he was raking the window out. You know, there's just some things you just can't control. That's one situation. If there's a way that you can at least try to determine the outcome of what's going to happen, you should. And again, you know, there's, this is nothing new. I mean, this is old news. I mean, cops have been serving warrants for years. And uh, you should basically know how and when to serve warrants. And I don't want to bypass the fact that um, three kids are without their dad and their mom and um, a husband and a wife are without their spouses. The whole thing is, it's shocking and sad. And even though I'm not law enforcement, I, I just, I think it probably could have been avoided. There's no question. And, and let me just state for everybody listening, uh, Jeff, we appreciate you and what you've done to, to keep our community safe and sound. Uh, we need officers like you. We need agents like Alfin and Schwarzenberger. And you need to do whatever's in your power to make this extremely dangerous job as safe as possible. These were lives that did not have to be lost. If I can add something to this, uh, one of the things that we did as homicide investigators, uh, you know, we handled police-involved shootings. You know, sometimes the officers were killed, sometimes they were just wounded, or they would shoot and kill individuals. So what our department would do is, is assign a, a team to, to do, basically it's an after-action investigation and report Mm -hmm. And you basically dissect everything that occurred that led up to the shooting. And then once you've gathered all that information and, and you interviewed everybody that needs to be interviewed, then you, then you present it to the command staff at a briefing. And one of the reasons you want to do that is to try to eliminate anything that may have occurred that was wrong so it doesn't happen the next time. And again, you know, you can do these things by the number and they can still go to shit, excuse my language. I understand completely. Thank you. Gentlemen, thank you both very, very much for taking part in this. Um, again, I don't want to make light of it, and um, I've been told that criticizing the FBI during this time is unkind, and my comment is, well, allowing this to have happened to two agents is a little bit worse than unkind. It is what it is. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. One small good thing comes out of this terrible situation. Rapper Kodak Black, whose real name is Bill Capri, has offered to pay the college tuition for the children of the two murdered agents. A kind, generous offer for no reason other than he's being a decent human being. Nice job. 
Thanks for listening to Primetime Crime, the podcast. Follow us on Facebook at Primetime Crime and on Instagram and Twitter at Primetime Crime underscore. Post your comments and tell us what true crime stories you'd like to hear about. Subscribe to Primetime Crime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Thanks a lot.